0: Alright, so Ephesians 1, we're going to finish up today, and um, we're going to do the last, it's going to be um, four verses, so we're going to um, get through, that. we did the first half of verse 19 uh, two weeks ago, and then we're going to do the second half of verse 19, and we'll finish out through the rest of verse 23. This really could be broken up into three messages, but I... I just thought it actually goes together so well. It's kind of poetic and um, I thought it went together well. So I tried to condense it as much as I possibly could, depending on the version that you're looking at. Verse 19 may or not be broken up by punctuation in the middle of it. And it's one of the reasons I use the NASB uh, this week. I usually read out of the ESV for Sunday morning. This is my regular study Bible, but For mine, in the middle of verse 19, there's a period right in the middle. In many of them, there's a comma there or a colon uh, or semicolon. In this case, in mine, it has a period. And the way that the translators who put together the NASB did it, um, it breaks it up a way I think that makes sense. And it makes it easy to understand. It doesn't change the nature of it. Just with punctuation makes it read a little different. Uh, But we're going to, what we're finishing out is Paul's prayer. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This is the first prayer that Paul has of two in the book of Ephesians. Um, And we'll jump right in and read it. So I'm going to start right in the middle of verse 19. uh, And Paul says this, he says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let's pray together and we'll exposit this a little bit. So Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for all these uh, amazing folks who came to join us this morning for this Bible study. And uh, we just lift, lift up all the families of those who um, died in Afghanistan this week, Lord. We just ask for comfort for them. We know this is going to be a tough week um, with uh, remains coming home and uh, families gathering and, and funerals. Um, it is, it's tough. It's a tough week for those in and around the communities as well. Um, for the Marine Corps, for the Navy, and for the Army. We just, Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit do a work in Afghanistan. Uh, We need people saved, Lord. We know that that peace does not come through uh, pressure, through violence, and through politics. It comes through you. And we would ask that uh, you would do a work in the hearts of people there. Uh, Bless and protect the missionaries that are working over there, that you would keep them safe, Lord, and bless and protect those active duty service members who are uh, currently working in Kabul and around Kabul. We just thank you for who you are, Lord, and we thank you for your son, Jesus, and we ask for everything in his holy name. So the, um, if I was going to give this a title, I'd call it God's Footstool, uh, which is a, a pretty amazing thing when you think about God's footstool. It's like imagine putting your dirty feet walking around Jerusalem up on something, Whatever you put that thing on is definitely the lowest of the low. And we're going to see here uh, the definition of God's power as we read this thing. So, when we finished 19a a couple of weeks ago, we talked about God's power and his greatness and his power to save, uh, specifically that his power is poured out over us, the saints, right? The believers. And we become his inheritance. So, earlier in Ephesians, we talked about him becoming our inheritance and now we look at it as us becoming his inheritance so it's it's both and but now he's, Paul Paul's really getting into describing what God's power looked like and what it looks like and power over who and for what reason so if we look at that second part of verse 19 it says these are in accordance so what is these what is what are these and what does Paul mean by that it's really interesting because in the greek text There's no these are. That's an add-in in in the English to make it read well. Um, uh, And it really starts out with this word kata or down. So against or according to. This is uh, the transition point where we learn how God has the power previously mentioned that we talked about two weeks ago uh, to make us his inheritance. So how does God utilize his power to make us his inheritance according to his call and we're going to see that as it unfolds in verse 20 it shows the manifestation of the power that the god man jesus christ has raised from the dead and so as i looked at this i got to thinking as i'm reading it um you know if you've ever had a debate with a friend or maybe not even a friend like this, this whole idea of like, well, Jesus isn't the only one that's ever raised himself from the dead. There's all these mythological guys and mythological people that have all raised themselves from the dead and they're all a blood sacrifice and they cover things with the blood. And so I, I started getting into this probably more than 10 years ago because I would hear things and I'm like, I don't have a good answer for that. Is there, are there other mythological people who have been raised from the dead and are now a deity or are they, Or they were buried and raised themselves up out of the grave. And I'm like, I don't have a good answer for that. But what I found through reading a lot of this was is that it's not necessarily that people who are arguing against Christianity have a good leg to stand on. They'll just throw stuff out there that's maybe not true. Because if they know that you don't know the answer, it'll trip you up. (laughs) that's, That's pure satanic right there. I mean, that's Satan at its best, right? It's the counterfeit Jesus. It's like anything I can do... To give you an answer, even if it's wrong, I'm going to do it to see if I can stumble you. I'm going to give you some examples. Some of these people you've heard of, but they'll throw it out there. <clears throat> Adonis, right? Everybody's heard of Adonis. Maybe as a younger man, you were called an Adonis. Maybe not anymore. But Adonis was that mythological uh, Greek guy. So there's a Greek and Roman version of him. Um, but the reality was there's no clear mythology on it. Um, this idea of Zeus and Calliope having Adonis as a son, they had him roam around in the underworld forever. But there's no story of him being raised. But like, if you argue with an atheist, it'd be like, well, Adonis went to the underworld and then came back. So like him being dead and came back. But no clear mythology that says it was and no eyewitness accounts, which is really important. There's another Baal. So Baal is a used that's word and used throughout a bunch of different religions, right? God talks about Baal as early on as during the exodus, right? They build the golden calf to worship Baal. And then we see Baal worship all the way through the you know, first couple of centuries. And we see it in a lot of um, Greek and Roman mythology. Um, so this guy, Alien Baal, uh, was from Rosh Shemra texts, where he roams the lower ro- uh, realms and then copulated with a cow and has a bunch of different versions. It's totally unreliable. Um, and it's Baal worship. It's something that's been repeated throughout history, but there's no Jesus figure. Addis is another one from Phrygian. He was killed by castration uh, and being gored by a boar, one of two or both. But there's no evidence of his resurrection. Marduk, if, you, if you've ever heard of Marduk before, if you've heard of the Enuma Elish, so we have the oldest written religious documents in the world are actually from the Enuma this story that comes out of Samaria which is uh, um, this stone tablet text and it's the oldest flood story that's recorded and we could talk about that at a different time whether it's the first flood story or whether it's just a recording of the flood story that Moses wrote later but those people chiseled it into stone and it happens to be that it is a flood story but it's really inconsistent it, there's no completion to the story uh Marduk was never killed he was actually imprisoned and then he was released he never did die and then rise to um, deity status and it's more of a cult it was much more of a cult than anything else but the biggest one that people use is Osiris people be like Jesus looks just like Osiris in ancient um <clears throat> you know mythology. Atheists and skeptics love this when they try to leverage it. Your Jesus is just based on him. Um, there's, a, there's some ancient texts about Osiris. There's some stuff written about him. But the mythology is more about life after death, not about him dying and then coming back. So they're trying to justify some sort of afterlife. afterlife and there's no rising of him to become a deity or overcoming death. It's an afterlife-only story. So it's unreliable. There's a couple other ones out there, Tammuz, Demuzi. But how is Jesus different? So we're talking about in this thing, he brought about in Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heaven. He raised him from the dead. How do we know he raised him from the dead? How is Jesus different from everything else that the atheists try to argue against us? Here's how Jesus is different. We have over 500 eyewitness accounts of Jesus being alive after he was dead. The Bible records it. We have the recordings from Acts. I mean, if you look at the Bible as itself, right, it's not a book. It's a collection of books. People from different places, different walks of life, different times, all wrote about it. So we have 500 eyewitness accounts. It's historically accurate. The Roman crucifixion, Jesus is accepted even by the critics who existed, and he was killed and buried. We know this. It's good history. There's an empty tomb. the little details about the empty tomb are really important. It was Joseph's tomb, the Roman guards, the women finding him are all details that seem out of place. They're not a good way to write a first century story for Jews. I mean, to, to, to write to a bunch of Jews that women found him would be totally inconsistent with first century Judaism. They would completely discount it. So why is it written that, that way, right? So it makes sense when you put the story together though that Christ would have the story written in a very specific way so we know that it's consistent with itself. Jesus was dead. We know this from the Bible accounts and extra-Biblical accounts. He was crucified and killed and buried. Early accounts, people wrote about it during their lifetime. Throughout the whole entire New Testament, we have people who lived during Jesus' lifetime, walked with Jesus, saw Jesus, saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, and they wrote about it. Prophecy fulfilled. To a mathematic impossibility, prophecies were fulfilled. Paul is a great example of why we know Jesus is resurrected. Why? Paul's a Jew, Paul's a Pharisee, Paul does not believe in Jesus Christ, he has an experience of road to Damascus, and he throws away his life to become a believer. It would have made no sense for a Roman citizen, fully Jew, who had money to throw away his entire, it would have been absolutely nuts him to throw away his lifestyle to be like okay i'll become a follower of jesus because remember they have put him in prison for it they beat him and torture him regularly he could have just been like all right i'm a jew again i'm a roman i don't want any of this he did not and then the other one is james jesus brother james the lesser right didn't believe i mean the bible accounts that he did not believe i mean he shared bunk beds with christ in his house you know as a carpenter as a kid he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah until after Christ was resurrected. That's pretty interesting, right? To live in God's house and like people are being raised from the dead and he's healing people and like their skin diseases are falling off of him, he's walking on water, he's doing all this stuff. I mean, if you had siblings growing up, I would imagine like, you know, if your brother's like, hey, I'm God, and you're like, Really? Really you're God? Come on. Really? And Jesus is like, yeah, man, I'm him. All you gotta do is believe in me. And he's like, no, no, I share a bunk bed with you. I know how this goes. So it's interesting that the text is very honest about like James didn't believe until after Jesus um, was raised from the dead. But it's this true power that it was never seen before. God has authority over life and death. And in this case, Jesus resurrected from the dead. Our entire faith rests on that. Because if Jesus doesn't resurrect from the dead, then Christianity doesn't exist. He has to have... I, I listen to this thing on the, the radio. These two uh, British theologians are talking about whether or not Christ being raised from the dead is an imperative for the Christian faith. And there are theologians who believe that as long as he's spiritually resurrected, that that's okay. And I'm like, no, that's not okay. Like if they stole his body out of the tomb, but as long as his spirit rose to heaven, I'm like, no, he's God. This whole idea that he can't change the metaphysical world just shows our limitations to our simple human minds. He's God. How did he make him come back from the dead? I don't know. Uh, He just did. And I don't need to know because he's God and I'm not. So, um in the last part of this, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Lord and It's in the heavenly places. This is a throwback, a reference to Paul goes to Psalm 110 verse one, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. And this is King David and he's recognizing the position and power and sovereignty that's unequaled anywhere. So to be a sovereign king and be able to basically put your feet up on your enemies, like kick back relax like i'm not even worried about winning the war my enemies sit under my feet i don't even need to get out of this chair sovereignty and that's the interesting thing about this 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 thing of power the word that he uses when king david writes this word is this word yamin in hebrew and it's used a lot in the old testament text and by uh, paul's contemporaries they would have truly understood the significance of jesus authority according to his position. And then heavenly places, he puts in here, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Just kind of a weird way to write things like, what does he mean by heavenly places? Does he mean in heaven? Or does he mean just in space? Or what does it mean? really what it means it's the spiritual realm so if you were to talk about like everything that exists outside of the temporal so angels other deities so if there would have been pagans there or non-religious heavenly places would have been this idea of like hey whatever god you believe in i'm in charge of that too hey where the angels live yeah i'm in charge of that too so he's kind of given a catch-all phrase for like whatever you believe exists outside of this i'm god of all that and so rest assured. No matter how high you think your God is, or how powerful you think angels are, my God's in charge of all that too. So there's no space that you can make outside. Well, God doesn't exist over there. Paul's like, no, no, He's God everywhere. Um, we move on to verse 21. Um, I want to reference this verse uh, from Romans 8:38. Verse 21 says far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the next. Paul wrote in Romans 8, and verse 38, he said, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creature thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's this idea that he is in, like we were talking about the spiritual realm, he is in, he is, everything is in his purview. He's God over it all. He's the originator of everything, so that way he gets to be sovereign over everything. Uh, in this age and the age to come, which would be, you know, a lot of people were thinking afterlife at this time. He's talking about the day of the Lord, what's going to happen next, because there was a lot of end times people in this time. A lot of people looking for what's going to happen next. It was a big thing. You remember such a horrible life for a lot of these people. Like not a lot of running water, not a lot of indoor toilets, no HVAC systems, like a lot of war going on. Bands of bandits rolling into the village. Like Romans were crushing the entire world. If you went against the Romans, they would basically just come in and decimate you. You know, they were some of the most awful, awful armies and humans ever. Um, when you think about how the romans treated people when you think about in this case like you remember the roman soldiers going house to house looking for christians if you can imagine like the police coming to your house and being like hey where are the christians and you're like i don't know so they kill the dad and then look at the rest of the family and be like all right where are they now like that's the type of people the roman soldiers were they were not nice and the soldiers like the centurions who soldiered they were really like police right they but they didn't police from the perspective like our guys do it was like with that heavy-handed like you follow the law or we just it was judge dread style right um so it's this idea of complete sovereignty over everything then we get into this footstool and this is just crazy me put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things this (coughs) excuse me like psalm 8 6 Um, Again, King David, you have put everything under his feet. We're talking about King David, but this idea of ownership of everything. Um, Jesus uses Psalm 110 reference in Luke 20 as well when he's explaining his position to the Pharisees um, who questioned the resurrection and his position. Because the Pharisees had this idea like in order for Christ to be who he was, he has to come through a royal bloodline to be a king here. So he comes out of King David's bloodline. And they're like, how can you be David's son, but also be David's king? And they couldn't get their simple minds around that because they didn't realize he was God. So he's like, I've come out of this bloodline, but I'm also going to be seated on the throne in heaven. So Jesus uses that there um, in proving his deity and his authority. Um, But in this verse, we also learn that it's God who gave Jesus the church to be the head and the church is his body. It's God the Father that gives it to him. Jesus just doesn't do it under his own power. Everything's God the Father. There's a headship in the Trinity. Um, And we see that there's a perfect unity in the Trinity where God the Father gives him all authority and then Jesus executes that authority through his rising up for the grave, through his perfect uh, uh, substitutionary atonement, his sacrifice. So it's everything he does is completely perfect but the final part of this is really interesting to me because i started to look at references of how this all comes together and you look at the last verse and he talks about uh he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him jesus as head over all things to the church which is his body to the fullness of him who fills all in all it's like such a weird verse like what does that mean head over all things to the church which is his body the church is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So are we the fullness of him or is he the fullness of us? And this is really debated. Like I read a few different commentaries on it. People vehemently disagree on this. This is one of those ones where it's hard to come to a real good conclusion on it. But people will come to that conclusion that a really super smart guy, smarter than me, you know, really good at Greek and all stuff. And they'll read it and come to a conclusion. No, we're the fullness of him. And then some other just a smart guy will be like, no, he's the fullness of us. So I, I started looking at what does it mean? So if you were to read this one, the NASB or say an ESB, it says the fullness of him who fills all in all. The King James or the New King James says the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And if you look at the New International, it says the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So it's written in a, in a bunch of different ways because people who translate it from the Greek don't know how to translate it because it's written really weird. Or he fills all things in all ways. So how do we figure that fullness out? So Christ is a king. In order to be a king, you have to have a kingdom. And in your kingdom, there's subjects. So in order for Christ to be a king, we need to be his subjects. So somehow in God's perfection, in order for Christ to have his fullness, God has made us his kingdom. So I know this sounds really weird and it might sound almost blasphemous, but God needs us for Christ to be a king because without subjects in his kingdom, he's not a king. There's no kingdom. But the same we need him because he is our fullness. Because without him being our king, there is no fullness of faith and we don't end up being part of the kingdom. We don't end up being part of the inheritance and he is not our inheritance. So as I got to looking kind of at both sides of it, I was like, well, both of these thoughts are right. They're, they're, we need him. He doesn't need us, but to be the king of the kingdom there's a requirement that the God, the father has made that for Jesus to sit on the throne, that we become his kingdom. And so both are the same, they are the fullness of, so we are the fullness of his kingdom. He is the fullness of our heart and our faith. And I just thought that was really interesting because I couldn't find a solid answer on it anywhere. And I thought it was awesome that I think guys who really stick to one story, I'm like, man, if you could just see both sides of the coin, they're both right. And it really is an interesting um, Interesting take on it. Uh, As I finish this thing up, uh, I'm going to finish with this. Um, Charles Spurgeon has this thing to say in his commentary. It says, How Paul glows as he writes on this great theme. He waxes warm and rises to an enthusiasm of eloquence. We could not stop to explain his words that were to spoil their poetic heard their mystic poetry oh to have a heart that can glorify christ as paul did truly if we know ourselves to be one with christ and know the privileges which come to us through that blessed gate we may indeed extol him with all our heart and soul and i thought this was a really beautiful way to sum this up spurgeon is really saying gosh if we could just be more like paul in our prayer more like paul in our enthusiasm for who christ is because we forget sometimes like the contemporary god is the genie in a bottle i mean i just listened to some heretic somebody sent the other day some ladies like i picture my jesus just like the blue cartoon genie there the like aladdin i call on him for something it's like would you do that would you do it to the governor like if you wanted something, would you go to the governor of the state and just say, hey, I want this from you? Would, would you call the president and tell the president exactly what you require in your life and tell them that? You know, it, it makes absolutely no sense that you think that the God who sits above all the governors and all the presidents and that you went over the creation of the world is somehow a genie to you that you would just be able to call on him for whatever healing or whatever work that you need. That is absolute heresy. Paul recognizes how beautiful and how amazing God is as our creator and our redeemer. And we need to have that perspective. And I think the contemporary church has lost that. And when things get tough, when we start talking that way, we forget that God's in charge. And I got to thinking about this as I was reading that in light of all the recent political squabbles, and we all, we talked about it this morning, just all the stuff that's going on and who we want to blame for the stuff that's going on, I think most of us probably agree, there's a lot of blame to go around in a lot of places, some more specific than others. And all the coronavirus stuff, there's people that need blame, political and presidential failures that cost the lives of young American warriors. We forget that God's in control. We forget that as we're like, Hey, I want that guy held accountable. It's like, you know what? That guy's already been held accountable. We forget that vengeance is not ours. And sometimes we need to just take a deep breath and back up and be like, you know what? I'm going to do my part as a believer. And I'm not saying don't be a good citizen. Don't be a good warrior. Don't support your community. Don't be outspoken. I'm saying at a very visceral level, the temporal level, we need to remember to put ourselves in a position where like, God's got this. Those people that have done wrong by those young men, they're getting theirs. There's nothing I can do that's any worse than what God is. He's got a plan for them and it's not good. It's bad, bad. And for those who have sacrificed and served that were believers in Christ, they're in glory. And nothing that I do or say or video or read, nothing I can do can do better than what God has for them. So I can't, somebody worse than him and i can't lift somebody up better than him he's got it and we need to remember that as we're praying as we're speaking to our neighbors when people ask us what our opinion is god's in control like i'm going to do my part but my part is just a tiny tiny little bit compared to the big plan we need to remind ourselves of that recently stop complaining about stuff right share the gospel with people what do people need they don't need a political position They don't need a vaccine. They don't not need a vaccine. They need Jesus. That's what they need. If they die with or without COVID, or if they die in Kabul or die in Pinehurst, North Carolina, they go to hell without Jesus. They go to heaven with him. So what do people need? They need Jesus. That's what we're here for. We need to proclaim his mighty power loud, loud and clear, right? So that's my prayer as I conclude this morning. My prayer for you this morning is when you feel like the enemy's winning, Because I I don't know about you guys, but last night I was sitting there and a message came through from the foundation. And I was just like, you know, deep breath moment. It feels like the enemy's winning a lot. I know when you're still in in the fight, sometimes it feels like the enemy's winning. He's not. The enemy's not winning. The fight's already over. Christ already overcame sin and death. He's under God's feet. He's his footstool. God's enemies are his footstool. You know, when you feel like your government and your neighbors have lost their mind and everything's out of control, it's not. It doesn't matter. God's in control of it all. It's all perfect. We're his body. He is our inheritance. And we are his. And that is good news. It is good news. And it doesn't matter how bad we think it is going to be. He's got it under control. That's my prayer for next week.